Hello and welcome to Movie Fixers, the podcast where we don't just critique movies, but talk about how they could be, gee, I don't know, just a little better. I'm your host, Tony, and with me, as always, is the head honcho, El Numero Uno, the guy where it all stops and and <laughs> just never, never goes any further. <laughs> it's me, it's Matt, I'm here. That that was a good intro. I appreciate that one. I'm I'm where everything stops. That's I don't know how to take that exactly. But it's not just me joining the podcast today. We have a very special friend joining us for this episode, uh, and I'd have no cool things to say about him except for he's just one of the coolest dudes I know, one of the funniest guys I know, and his name's Nick. Nick Caducci's here. Hi, Nick. Hey there. Thanks for. How is the crew and and everyone uh, who listens to these things doing? I, I think good i don't know i don't i, I think well, well we'll hear about it i'm sure <laughs> we haven't we haven't gotten a lot of feedback uh in 2019 yet but we also we're just getting back into this so i imagine we're just we'll getting have, started yeah it's it's this is is this our first episode for 2019 or did we do one earlier this year i thought we snuck one in but oh wait you know, we honestly did Bird Box, the months right? just fly by yeah bird box was this year man time's just a flying but <laughs> you guys review movies <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> we, we we fix movies. <laughs> but we're actually not here to do that today. Um not specific not a specific movie. We uh, brought Nick on the show because Nick has had a lot more professional experience working with the industry than either Matt or I combined. And that's going to be very important in the topic we have today. Today's episode is called The Buck Stops Here. And it's called that because a lot of times People will criticize a specific person for the failings of a movie, but that's not necessarily the person responsible. Some may say uh, that an actor ruined this movie or was just horrible in this movie, and the truth is, is that the writing was bad or the direction was non-existent. And what we want to do is maybe just look a little bit deeper into that today and break down what can go wrong and who might be responsible. And we brought Nick along to kind of give us a little bit more of a professional outlook on that. So we appreciate you coming out here, Nick. (laughs) Oh, appreciate being asked. Always fun to join you guys. And even for stuff like this. Well, let me uh, let me not waste any time here. Let me ask you, and Matt, you can weigh in on this too, what you guys think can make a movie bad? Not necessarily who's responsible, but what it is in a movie that can fail that just makes the movie fall flat, as we like to say here on Movie Fixers. Well, I can say for me, the, the very – I have such a performance background. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always in it for the performances. So – a bad performance or even a lackluster performance is is really one of the very first things that pulls me right out of a movie. You know, it can have a great concept. It can have amazing, you know, effects and it can have lots of things going for it, but a really terrible performance or a bunch of mediocre performances uh, will definitely ruin a movie for me. Yeah. Well, it is a lot of things and it is very to taste. I would say there's, yeah, uh, you know, there's lots of sayings. Sometimes they're just, you know, weasel words or something where it's like you can't please everybody or I do think that it is kind of variable. There is kind of no wrong answer to me. I would think any one of the many things that should go right for a movie could make it bad. If the story is not compelling or if it's just not a subject you're at all in- interested in, 
Like, I don't know if anyone can make tennis interesting enough for me to watch it. I don't care if Wimbledon <laughs> exists. It's a, no. Great. There goes all of our tennis player audience. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, sometimes the plot just really is that boring. You know, there are people who have made totally uninteresting ideas completely compelling. They have characters that are just, I've never seen that before, or I totally get that, and I've never seen it done that way, or... Like you said, the performance can be just so good. I was not expecting that, that kind of thing. Or perhaps it's just done in a style that is just mesmerizing. Or in a style that is done so much that it does nothing for you, and that was what the movie was banking on for you to watch it. So it's just kind of... Yeah. I forgot I even watched a movie today. Even though, oh yeah, I watched that movie today. What was it? That's kind of how I felt when I watched the movie 300 for the first time. I felt like it was really leaning in in really hard on that style and you either like it or you don't like it. And I didn't. So the the whole movie kind of lost for me. I will admit I did like that one. It was mostly for the effects though, because I hadn't seen comic book panels Mm. done so literally before. Right. (laughs) And it was kind of neat, but I mean, subsequent movies of Zack Snyder's I found were, well, Oh, trust. I'm sure we'll talk about Zack Snyder some more in this episode. <laughs> oh, I have a I have a reason to bring him up. So, okay. yeah, we'll we'll come back to that. All right. But yeah, when well, you make a good point, Nick, one of the other things that I don't think we touched on uh, until right now was that your attachment to the source material can really make a movie fall flat for you or not. If you've read the book or know the graphic novel, but the movie does not adhere to your interpretation, yeah it can definitely, that can really be all that's wrong with it. And I know Matt and I, we definitely have trouble distancing ourselves from what we think it should be versus did it actually just do a good job on its own. But you know, even related to that is just world building in general. Because I think, especially when Mm -hmm. it comes to genre films and like sci-fi fantasy films, if your world building starts to fall apart and that's all you, because like I think for, for a lot of us, that can get so distracting that you can't enjoy what's working in the movie in, in the movie you know you, you're so just put off by that doesn't even make sense that doesn't make sense and it's and you can't even recognize a good performance or some really great style choices and uh production quality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so listing everything here i think we could say categorically Things that can be bad in a movie is the story, which we're going to go ahead and include world building in there just for simplicity's sake. The effects just, and that can be from the style to the practical or special effects, computer effects in there. Uh, Performance was definitely a big one. And then we're going to say the preconceptions you may have going into this uh, movie. And that can be whether you, what you thought about it or what you were expecting versus what you got. Yeah. Can we say that those are like the four categories we want to stick on? I mean, I think there's definitely other things, but I I think we've landed on probably the the biggest culprits because, I mean, Mm, even I would say even production decisions like production design decisions could really pull you out of a movie. If the costuming sucks and the sets all look like crap and, you know, like I think that could ruin a movie easily. But I think as far as what regularly makes movies bad I think we've 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 hit them. I think cool. um, one thing that we'll get in we may get into it is uh, the preconceptions one may possibly balloon into like two or three by itself because yeah. there's also I mean what you bring in there's there's baggage so that's that's one preconception another one is sometimes your familiarity sometimes what 
is going on right now. Mm-hmm. Like when 9-11 was going on, that dictated a lot of decisions by other companies. Like Lilo and Stitch changed like whole chunks of the movie because right. 9-11 happened. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, I mean, in Spider-Man 2, there was a scene of him suspending a criminal between the two towers. So obviously some of that stuff changed things. But uh, it's... It just means that whatever's going on in the world, what attitude you bring into the theater is going to affect how you see it. True. Well, you know, and and speaking of preconceptions and, like, baggage, there's there's also what the distributor itself gives you. So, like, trailers. Hmm? Trailers, reviews, like, all of those things definitely affect what, what your experience in the theater. And this may touch on later to... Uh something you mentioned later or you're planning on mentioning later and things about like what do what could responses be to movies that aren't very good is there things like boycotts well some people choose to maybe have a negative opinion about a movie because the company that's making it is something they've got a beef with yeah i tend to think solo was a good example of that i think it got an unfair reputation for being bad because a lot of people didn't like the last jedi yeah and that was i mean i think some people came around to that but uh, came around to realizing that but i do think it it suffered for it for sure well all right well good this is all good stuff and what i want to do now is take all of these things that can that we've decided can really make the film fall flat and talk about who's responsible and what their role is yeah to make to, to not let this happen and how much control they actually have versus how much control is usually assumed and here definitely we've already been listing some good examples off the front end keep the examples coming of anything specific so we talk about story who is responsible for in you know in a film for making the story not fall flat well <laughs> i think every movie starts with the writer i mean that's pretty straightforward right like everything starts with a script or at least a story so writers are certainly mm-hmm. where, where everything starts i think with movies a lot of time though things get out of their hands unless it's a it's a film that's written directed produced by in general writers kind of hand over their baby in the delivery room and it's kind of out of their hands from there and especially with big tent bolt tent pole like studio films they don't have a lot of say in how their script gets treated down the road. That they have they have say and pull the studio does in making those changes. So it's it's I think it's hard unless it's a specific, you know, instance, it's hard to I think peg a lot of that blame on the writer. Although they definitely screw up movies. <laughs> They certainly can. I, I do know a few people who have written movies and uh I'll tell you there's what you're saying is totally true. Typically speaking, the writer kind of isn't involved in the project once it's sold. Yeah. They write a script and it gets picked up by somebody. Sometimes they'll be asked to polish it a few times or something, but often they'll bring in another writer to rewrite it. Sometimes half a dozen people will have rewritten the movie by the time it actually goes into production or even... Right. Well, you have those scripts that have been floating around Hollywood for, you know, 20 years, 15 years... As you know, the, the mm-hmm. what's the the yearly blacklist or the the yearly list of unproduced screenplays, and mm-hmm. you know it gets revisions and rewrites, and it, it's interesting. Writers writers are I think more they have more clout in television I think than they do in films. 
Yeah, I would say uh, perhaps the showrunner would have the most. The showrunner is the guy who's sort of the de facto director of a TV show, mm-hmm. and they have a writer's room of, like, I don't know, anywhere from, like, four to a dozen people who tend to come up with the episodes, and, you know, they bounce ideas off each other, and it's a pretty collaborative process. Of course, it's pretty hectic, too, because it's usually a tight schedule. Right. But uh, it, for movies, um, for example, if you get a smaller movie, like, I, I actually work with someone who is releasing a movie in Feb, actually in like a week. And uh, it's it's a one of those Hallmark Channel kind of deals produced for, you know, not that much, but enough to get it in a lot of theaters. And he and his co-producer friend are the guys who came up with the story, worked for like 15 years to get the thing made. <laughs> It took a long time for them to find wow. enough people or enough people with pull to get the thing produced. Oh, wow. And when that happened, they ended up having to hand over a lot of the decisions to the marketing team. Believe it or not, you'd be surprised how much the distribution, which I know is a later subject here, actually has a hand in dictating what's in the movie. Like, for example, this isn't spoiling anything, but because I don't, I highly doubt you guys will watch it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it's, uh, there were strong pulls by the two guys had to say, I'm the executive producer, and it stays this way against the guys who are distributing the movie who are saying, no, this character can't die. Can this character be black? Can this character, can this be a woman now? Or all kinds of things that like, this was our story. We like, we, we finished it like a long time ago, 15 years. We've been trying to make this story and <laughs> you're making us change it like at the last minute for things that I don't think is, would make the story better. I think it hurts it because huh. I have to come up with some, you know, half-hearted excuse as to why this is different now. So, Nick, can you, you mention, I think this is a good time because I think what we're learning here is that things even like the story can be affected by people that you would assume come in at the end, but they're actually there from the beginning. You talk Mm -hmm. about the distributors. Can you give us just a quick summary of of what the distributors do? Quick. Um, Even even my knowledge is not that extensive about it because I usually um, hear a lot of this from producers who are telling me how hectic their schedule is. I suppose you need about as much money as it took to make the movie to distribute the movie, kind of as a rule of thumb. So if a movie costs $100 million to make, it'll cost about that much to distribute it and advertise for it. And believe me, they, they blanket the country in this stuff. That's why if a, if a movie releases in about 4,000 theaters, that's like the, the max capacity for like a blockbuster. It takes Facebook campaigns, it takes YouTube campaigns, it takes targeting what events are happening in the country all the months leading up to it as to, as to when to release the trailers. And of course, taking feedback from those trailers and making new new adjustments, sometimes doing reshoots and changing scenes and this character was going to die, but now we're changing that. They'll sometimes do that a month from the release of the movie. It's, it's, and a lot of this is the media distribution arm of the company. Now, if you've got a big enough organization like Disney, now Disney is a distributing company, more or less. I mean, Buena Vista is technically a separate company, but they're basically the same company. That's just my take on it. (laughs) But what they do is they make sure it gets in theaters. They make sure enough eyeballs have seen it and enough ears have heard about it that end would actually bite to see the movie. What gets butts in seats? Oh, Adam Sandler's in the movie? Make sure his name and face is everywhere on it, even if he's only in a bit part. I don't care. It's just what gets butts in seats. That's what counts. 
So because they want to make sure that A, people know about it and then go see it, this might be a reason they want to alter mm-hmm. some of the effects of the story mm-hmm. like you were just oh, and describing me, that to matters. reach a broader um, audience. Because it's it's the kind of thing where, for example, uh, my coworker who has a movie, it took about, I think, $8 million total. So that means $4 million to make, $4 million to distribute. He needed to get people to buy in to the movie in order to afford to distribute this thing. And he's doing it like down to the wire. Like he has to make calls and take trips around the country all the time trying to find someone, hey, can you give me $500,000 and we'll give you 20% of that back once the money comes in from the movie sales. And it's like, oh, okay, how sure of a bet is this? Well, that's when the distribution, the distribution team and the promotion team are going to guarantee that. They guarantee the return on investment. And ultimately, without them, you wouldn't get movies. Interesting. So you really have to be a cut above the rest to even, like, not just as a writer, but as even the maybe director or creator of the piece to, to have a lot of final say. There is a big problem of too many cooks in the kitchen on a lot of movies. Now, Hollywood does, in fact, know this to some degree, and they have things they do to try and cut down on that. They try to make sure that one person's vision is kind of, sort of, at least in charge of the thing. But it's it's a real big tangled thing that you'd really, I guess, like Disney in the Marvel Universe, for example, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's Kevin Feige, who's sort of the, he's sort of the quarterback of all of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's from Marvel, the company, and he sort of helps secure that the world is cohesive and that it matches the lore of the comics. He tells the directors what to do. (laughs) And for these franchises, someone like him is actually more responsible for us maybe enjoying the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole more than individual movies. It's funny you mentioned the MCU, because we're talking about story right now. I always think back to Joss Whedon, who did the first Avengers and really broke out with that in a lot of people's minds. So the second Avengers Age of Ultron came out and he he wanted to be done after that because he just kept talking about how there were so many stipulations because Age of Ultron was setting up a bigger story other than itself and it was just exhausting for him as he described it trying to tell a story in this movie while making sure he plugs all the things that he needs to that will build it forward. And that's that's something we we don't see a lot of until now where we've got these franchises that are really breaking out and it's your movie is more than just your movie. It's part of a bigger uh, if world. there are obligations like that, this is where you'll get into the directors, producers, studios portion of this. Yeah. Uh, for, for my money, I thought, I thought age of Ultron was, it was okay, but obviously it felt a little confusing when you watched it the first time kind of thing aside from the cool bits. <laughs> um, but then you also wonder, why did uh, Thor have to go to a magic jacuzzi in the middle of the movie? I don't understand. Uh, there was, you know, weird things. It's like, I forgot that even happened. What was that about? Um, <laughs> but that would be one of the things that Joss Whedon specifically mm-hmm. complained about, stuff right. like that. That was in there to set up Thor uh, Ragnarok, which only a little of that ended up actually kind of in the movie. So... <laughs> Right, and it was so they were so far apart. I don't think people remembered a lot of that. Just like I'm not gonna lie, I'd forgotten about it but, until this conversation. <laughs> totally forgot about the the. Genius. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you're the only one. So I want to talk about. I want to keep this moving. We 
I think we're going to have a lot of the same people responsible for all of these things. The other part of a movie we talked about were the effects, and this includes, like, style. So if you're doing, like, a Zack Snyder 300 or any of his other movies style film, or if you're just talking about practical versus special effects and what those look like, is that all just... Based on Nick, you've got an animation background. Is that all just based on how much money you have to dump into that, or is there a, a kind of a skill level that we need to acknowledge too? And and the fact that we 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 see a lot of people really pushing for practical effects now versus <laughs> the the digital effects because they they last longer. You know, all of the all of the practical effects, even when they're not as good as they could have been, you go, man, but look what they did with so little versus you've got like movies like the the re-release of the original Star Wars series, where if you just go back and look at all those effects that may have been really swanky and shiny in, in its time are now just it's a 50 year old movie that's got almost 30 year old effects on it that just don't add up. Yeah, I think with visual effects, a, a lot of that falls to the director because he's ultimately the one calling the shots as to how how certain things are going to be achieved. Uh, when they made the most recent Jurassic World movie, Fallen Kingdom, uh, I can't remember that director's name, but he he made a concerted effort to do more practical effects and less like computer generated visual effects. And I mean, he's not the one ultimately doing the effects work, but decisions fall to the director, which is going to mm-hmm. be the case for a lot of these sorts of things. Like, especially with like smaller to medium films, a lot of, a lot of it is in the director's hands. I think kind of like you were talking about with Joss Whedon, once you get to these giant mega films, then it's almost harder to blame the director for, for certain things because so much of it's even out mm. of his or her hands at that point And more in like studio head. Yeah. It's, um, time. I would say the the director is, you're right, a very significant source of the vision of the movie. He is tasked with the vision of the movie. So if the movie just is kind of bland, A, that can, well, that is up to the director to execute um, or to make it not bland. It's to make it stick out and be fully realized and potent. That's what the director is supposed to do. He's supposed to realize it and have a very specific vision. But um, he can be interfered with, which is like what we were talking earlier, by uh, other factors like producers meddling too much or um, maybe he got taken off the project or something and another director got put on. If the director's vision is compromised or weak in some way, the movie will often feel kind of bland or or just nonsensical, like it won't make any sense (laughs) because the director had like a weird vision and no one really knew what he was know what he was talking about so they couldn't execute it a director right because as a director you have to have vision but yes that's another thing too a director also has to be a leader in a way um they have to be able to communicate and get everyone on board so that's actually it's a very tough job um from what i've seen but uh, as far as effects go they do take their lead from a director but there are other significant people in the process. There's the art director who is chosen, of course, by the director, usually. And then there, sometimes it's a studio, but uh, usually it's director. Uh, and then there's the director of things like photography. That would be like uh, Roger Deakins, for example. Roger Deakins is a very fantastic, everyone would recognize his work kind of director of photography. He did the last, the latest Blade Runner. He worked with M. Night Shyamalan a lot when he was doing his good movies like uh, Unbreakable and Signs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, his photography is really, really impressive. But his vision 
for like how to make the the look of things strike a strike an effect on people sometimes it's that sometimes it's up to that i mean guys like michael bay and other directors kind of like him they they come from the music video scene so they're actually really good at making potent visuals because they're not a, they don't really do a whole lot with like dialogue when they do music videos they do a lot of like uh, either abstract or very dynamic things so like michelle gondry uh, or uh, i'm just saying names i should say movies movies like uh snow white um that new one with uh or the newer one i guess with uh chris hemsworth that guy was a director of music videos and the visual effects in that are stunning movie itself mm. you know yeah it's funny you say that. I just caught the second one the other day, and I was struck by how... I, I, I must like, admit, I was like, oh, I just want to go was. back to this world. It's really cool. But uh, <laughs> that was just me. But as far as the visual effects, uh, budget plays a role. Like, you can't do giant, like... I mean, Avengers is practically an animated movie. It's it's hardly even a live-action movie. It's, <laughs> it's almost more animation than anything. And that's, like, all big kind of blockbusters these days. They do a lot of... Stuff that it would just be impractical to try and like go film in actually Prague or something like that. Well, why, why don't we just film on a back lot where there's a desert somewhere and then we Photoshop the buildings in behind them. So it looks like, you know, one of those places. Um, but uh, as far as creatures and things, there's a lot of philosophies about that. Like you were saying, some people really want to see practical. I would love to see practical simply because it's different. <laughs> it, for some reason, feels more real. Like, there's a reason Jurassic Park, the first one, still holds up, even when you watch it again. The raptors look real. <laughs> right. Well, and they're, they're, it's, it had the adverse effect mm -hmm. of that's how everyone It does have that, and, and certainly the surprise of it all, too, was, was you know, pretty big. That's lightning in a bottle, though. Um, but effects for... You, you wanted to know, like, animation. Why are there... Why are different looks chosen? Like, I think one example that came out lately is Spider-Man the the spider verse the that new movie was amazing it's beautiful um it, but it is a new style yeah yeah we've, we've it's just kind of a, a new ish style <laughs> it's um, such a good for movie. at least feature film anyway um it's it's just very neat to see something like that but it kind of has to come out of someone who's got the whole idea going on in their head uh the kind of people who can do that are guys like Wes Anderson, who does like the Isle of Dogs or uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. He had a very particular vision for those movies about the tone, about the feel of it. And he refused to compromise on that vision. And he would, you know, go do his movies for whatever budget they were made for. Right. I feel, especially like with Wes Anderson and others like him that have a unique style that you can always recognize it. Because even in his live action films, such as the Grand Budapest Hotel or Life Aquatic, you see his style in that. Another director, I would, I would argue that you always recognize their style is Tim Burton. You whether you like the movie or you don't, you, you always, not just because Danny Elfman's doing the music, you always recommend recognize that, okay, th this is, of course, Tim Burton, because there's an imagination there. And so I think those are examples of it being done well, or at least being communicated well, whether you may not have liked all of those movies. M. Night Shyamalan's definitely an interesting argument for one where it's been done well sometimes, and maybe it's the story rather than the style, but it's fallen apart a lot of others. What's another 
we're gonna we're gonna put this one on the director for the for this podcast again this is our opinions everyone knows that you're allowed to disagree and that doesn't make you wrong or less than than us but for us here at movie fixtures today we're saying that the style of the movie the effects ultimately falls on the director that's where we're putting this and so do you guys have an example of one where you were just like Nope, the the vision was not there. It, maybe the story was even good, but the effects just killed it for you. Here, here's an example, and we've already talked about him. Michael Bay and the Transformers films. Um, he definitely has his his style, and it's not just in the look. It's also like the the pacing and the the framing and the cutting and like all of that. And a, a great counter to that is. Travis Knight's recent Bumblebee movie, which exists in the same universe. It's a it's a prequel to the Transformers films by Michael Bay. And it I mean, it technically is telling a similar story with familiar character, but the visual style is so different. Um, I I was so pleased with Bumblebee for a bunch of reasons, but not the least of which was that I, I don't know, I just felt like I could see everything and keep up with everything, and it wasn't, like, everything wasn't super, you know, spinny cam, lens flare, like this, that that, that Michael Bay is very much known for. I used to call them Bayxplosions or something until I heard Bayhem, and I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, there, now that I've heard that, there's no better way to, to phrase that. So we, we've talked, it's funny, I feel like we're going in reverse on this. We talk about the story and we say that the distribu- distribution has a lot of final say on that. We talk about the effects and the style and that falls to the director, which in my mind is kind of next on the tier of hierarchy. And now we're, now we're going to look at, let's look at performance. And obviously the actors are the performers, whether they're voice actors or, you know, full on live action actors. But is it all on them to deliver that performance? Can the writing or even the direction or something else influence that? So I, I don't know. I have a lot of trouble ever blaming an actor for a movie's failure because an actor is an actor puts so much trust in the production team and the directors and the editors to, to do something with their performance. I'm not saying they can't be culpable, but you know, it's also, it's also casting directors faults. You know, sometimes movies are just miscast and that, you know, this person should never have played that role. So it's hard to blame the actor or the actress in that situation when I think they were just put Mm -hmm. in the wrong role in the first place you know i'm really trying to think of something that's not current or like i haven't like seen it yet <laughs> but um um well i mean we we talked recently about uh what movie did we do recently we did wicker man and that movie had a lot of problems like and we won't go into all of them again here but one of them was nicholas cage and i'm not gonna sit here and act like nicholas cage is a terrible actor there's definitely movies that i think he's mind-blowingly good in he was not good in that movie. And I don't know that replacing him would have fixed the movie, but I do think that that's a good example of had a different actor been in that role, it would have strengthened the movie more. And that's a funny note because we know just from our notes on that and doing a little bit of uh, trivia, Nick Cage was extremely invested in that film. 
Right. So he really wanted to play that role. So that's another thing where an actor may insert themselves into a role that may not be best for them, but something they want. Well, it's interesting when you think of people being miscast or, or this person has a vision. They have talent. They have charisma. But this story is the wrong fit. Like for I, like one of the prime examples I can think of are, are certain aborted movies that just didn't happen. Like uh, Tim Burton directing Superman with Nick Cage playing Superman. That's what that reminded me of. That really almost happened um, in like the late 90s. Yeah, it's that was wow. Um, that would have been interesting. <laughs> um, but there's there are others like certain people directing movies that probably shouldn't be directing them. Like you said, Michael Bay being a weird fit. I do think the juxtaposition of the first one made some sense, at least. And in my nostalgic mind, the first one wasn't that bad, but it still didn't make any sense <laughs> story wise. <laughs> yeah, the first one. But all the subsequent ones. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when you go back and watch that first one, you're like, wow, you know, I can forgive a lot more of this because it got so much worse. Um, now, another good example, I think, of a casting decision, but it, it's actually really similar. Uh, the the new Mummy film that came out, uh, what, three years ago, maybe? The one with Tom Cruise in the role? It had a lot of good things going for it, that movie, but he was not, he was not the right choice. To play, I don't even know what his character's name was, but to play that that role. Well, see, that actually gets into something else. Believe it or not, um, the actor can have a very profound effect, not only on the effect of the movie, like when it's done, but on the making of it. Um, Tom Cruise, for example, is actually very known for having a rather creative hand in the movies he's in, like Edge of Tomorrow, for example, um, turned out, it turned out much of the way it did, thanks to him. Um, he did a, not because of his acting, but because he would like he would make sure certain elements of the world were consistent, like would help with the directors and photography of, of things and things of that sort. He would actually help with that, keep things consistent, um, and insist on certain ways of making them uh, portraying things. Because he sort of really commits to these things. And sometimes he's really great for that. Like the Mission Impossible movies are totally about him. So, <laughs> And you have actors like Tom Cruise that have been in the business so long that they've they've been making movies longer than some of their like, you know, their directors have even been alive. So they they bring a lot of they of skill, I think. To mm -hmm. their yeah, like uh, George Clooney directs as well. He's also got a production company. Same with Leonardo DiCaprio, Sylvester Stallone. I think uh, Drew Barrymore has done it a few times. Um, there's they they all sometimes they com they collaborate and sometimes they almost de facto direct like Clint Eastwood. Um, but one example that I think stands the test of time is Jaws. Jaws has I mean there's so many books and stuff written about this, but. Jaws was a very interesting production. It was very, you know, plagued with hazards. It was bad. The effects didn't work. The shark didn't work. So they chose other, other ways of showing things. But the story wasn't working so well either. And the actors had to have a sit down, like the three main actors, um, had to sit down with the director, Spielberg, and just figure out what, you know, <laughs> before he was famous. And like, how do we make this work? How do we make this a good story? And they would actually put themselves like bits of themselves into these roles. They they all sort of committed to try and write the ship together. 
Um, and it actually worked out quite well because of that. They all got interesting spotlight moments because they all really cared about making it work. Um, sometimes it's it's just that magical. But <laughs> So it sounds like, and we're getting back to story versus performance, but it seems like it all sort of merges together, and the best scenario is to have everybody interested in making it the best story, not necessarily the best part for them or the best eye-catching whatever, you know, music video that's a movie, but rather when you have everybody involved trying to tell the best story, that collaboration mm-hmm. really well, comes one through. One thing, though, uh, because you, you do want to talk about things to fix, right? What are some examples like of uh, where it really sunk the movie, I guess? I would say the biggest ones are when actors are just phoning it in. You can just tell. There's, they're just playing themselves, and they're not really playing a character. I'm like, yeah, I know that's Idris Elba, and he's just doing his thing. Bruce Willis is accused of doing that in a lot of his most recent movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jack Nicholson was accused of that for a whole bunch of his movies, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Going back to some older stuff, there are two actors I would always hear complained about in movies that were bad as if they were the reason it was bad. And one of them was Spider-Man 3, which we did a movie fix in December on, and everybody blames Tobey Maguire. And Tommy McGuire is a good actor, but I think, Matt, that's an example of what you said earlier, which is he's not made for that role. He's not made to be Peter Parker. And we've already talked about how the Peter Parker in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films isn't even really Peter Parker. He's he's like a farce, like a parody of of a dork rather than a nerd. And the other one, and Matt, I think you'll agree with me on this one as well, because we've talked about it before. Uh, Hayden Christensen in the this, this second and third Star Wars prequel always gets a bad rap for being like the worst thing in those movies, which, no, there's so much more wrong with those movies. But if you see him in other roles, he's actually, I think, a good actor. I, I blame that on a story that just went nowhere. And you talk about actors phoning it in. By the third Star Wars prequel, I feel like Natalie Portman stopped trying. Yeah, it's funny. When you first introduced this conversation, the very first person I thought of was Natalie Portman in episode three. Because hmm. I feel like in two, she was still trying. But like in three, yeah, she felt like it felt so much like she showed up. She literally just said her lines and then went back to her trailer. And I mean, mm. I, I don't know. I don't really want to think that she would be like that, but it's that's definitely how it feels. <laughs> yeah, character. That's why that's where the term wooden comes from. It's like, oh, I'm just reading the script from my head. That's actually something that I love was there was a documentary, I think, about Star Trek captains. You seen this? Yeah, it's the, so isn't good. It just called the captains. Yes. Yeah, it's it's done by William Shatner, which was great. But when they got to Patrick Stewart, he was talking to his son, and uh, his son was recounting tips on acting that his dad would give him. And of course, his dad is Patrick Stewart. And uh, one of the best things I ever heard for acting, because I've I've had to like do it before for voice acting and stuff. It's like, no, you're not thinking. Stop doing that. Stop reading the script just because you have it in your head. You're just reading the script. Think. Say the words from you. Don't just read them. Stop that. <laughs> That's what wooden is. 
You're just reading the words. You're just saying it in a bland voice that isn't really anything. You're just trying to just say the words. <laughs> you memorized it for your test. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're going to forget it as soon as you, you're done taking the, doing the take. And apparently he would do that over and over and over again until his son never forgot it. <laughs> That's... For him. So now we're looking at, we, we've talked about the story, the style. I called it the effects at first, but now I'm thinking more the style. Um, the performance. And now we, the last thing we, we discussed was the preconceptions of your audience and what your audience thinks it's getting into. I mean, you guys gave some great examples like audience, you know, opinion and baggage, like whatever their own personal feelings are on a thing. One of the things I like about that is, or that I relate to that is, there are a lot of actors, especially sometimes directors, that get a persona of them that makes you not want to see them in movies. For a little while there, I mean, we keep talking about Tom Cruise, was called crazy. Um, Mel Gibson got like a lot of negative press and nobody wanted anything to do with him. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how good they are as a character, it's all about what their personal character mm. is. And I found that really, I, I can't give a lot of examples because I'd intentionally try to stay away from this stuff. Uh, my grandfather always had a problem with certain actors because they would get very political in like talk shows and things like that. And then he wouldn't see movies that I would recommend because, mm -hmm. uh, well, George Clooney would be like in it and he'd be like, well, I don't like Clooney. He says this. And I'm like, but, but um, it's the movie. I think you should just watch the movie. Is he saying that in the movie? <laughs> I, it, it didn't matter. It was completely uh, connected to him. I will not support this actor's work because they they have these opinions or they have done these things and I don't support that. And, and on the one hand, maybe that's good. I mean, it, it's what's gotten um, in recent time like Hollywood to start acting on things like the Me Too movement where people are starting to accuse, uh, you know, other you know, famous people of harassment and that they're never going to be held accountable for. And because that hits the bottom dollar for, you know, the audience, you know, movie makers and things act on that. But at the same time, should that matter? And and maybe this is a bigger question. I don't know, but I'd love you guys to weigh in on this. And we, we don't have to go into specific drama of, of one person, but do you guys take into account or can you stop yourselves from taking into account the character, the perceived character of the actor or the director or the people involved in making the film and just watch the film? I make it a point to do that, to try to just take the movie at, you know, at whatever value they're offering me. Um, if I if I'm interested in what I think you're trying to say or trying to tell me, I don't care who's making it. Um, I will try to give it a shot. I try to give every movie a fair shot because of that. And then if you disappoint me badly enough, I may <laughs> I may rail against it. But it's it's just I will always give it like an honest just do you have the floor. Show me what you got. That kind of thing. So <laughs> uh, that that's at least my my take on it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I'm, when it comes to talking about preconceptions in movies and, you know, the, the things that are outside of the movie itself. I don't know. I try and take all movies on their own merit. What 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 affects me more honestly is I think oftentimes I go into a movie and whether it's from word of mouth, from seeing trailers, from reading a review or even like a part of re of a review, you 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 can't help it. You start to develop 
an idea of what you're seeing and not just not just like how the story is going to go, but like the tone of the film, like those sorts of things. And I think it, it, it for me, a, a lot, it affects my first viewing. That's why I try and give a lot of movies two viewings if I can, because once I've gotten that initial viewing out of the way and I, I know what I'm seeing the second time, I think it's easier to enjoy it for its own merits and not for all those factors that, that play into it. And I mean, that <laughs> does include you know, the actors and the directors and their lives. And like you said, like, are they crazy? Are they racist? Are they whatever? But yeah, for me, the the bigger thing is, did your, did your trailer make me think I was going to go watch a like knee slapper comedy? And when I got in, it was like kind of heavy and weird. Like that, those sorts of things really, um, I think affect my viewing more. Parallel to that, I would say a trailer that gives you too much information about a movie, like that tells you almost everything that's going to happen. And this has become part of our culture now to try to break down and guess everything that's going to happen, especially in big blockbuster hits before it does based off the trailers. (laughs) Personally, I find that there are movies I don't see because I feel like there's nothing left to see after I've seen the trailer. Yeah. The trailer's done nothing to entice me, it's just told me everything I can expect. And I wonder, is that because there's an audience out there that doesn't wanna be surprised, that doesn't wanna not know what's going on? I I personally like that. When you, uh, Matt, when we went to go see The Shape of Water, I know I like Guillermo del Toro, I didn't know anything else about this movie when I took my wife Chrissy to go see it because she loves to IMDb and see who's in it and kind of get an idea of what she's going for. I told her, we're going to go see this movie called Shape of Water. I need you to not get on your phone and look anything up about it because I already knew it had every element she was going to love. And so when she saw directed by Guillermo del Toro and she got excited and then she watched the movie, she was just super overjoyed. And I think she would have still enjoyed it had she known what to expect, but I feel like she was so pleasantly surprised that that first watch when it can really (laughs) grab you and surprise you, because you're never going to get that again. You only get one first viewing until they invent some sort of technology for that. And I can't wait for them to do it to erase your memory and then watch Jurassic park all over again. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) That's what we'll do with that technology right now. Like for, for the first time, what if you hate it though? (laughs) <laughs> what if you watch it again for the first time and you hate it and we've got like recordings of you loving it and you're like who is this Matt that I don't know anymore oh, I don't think that you meant to do this but I'm having an existential crisis right now <laughs> <laughs> well we are different people <laughs> I'm a different person than I was when I was nine <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, oh my god that falls into our preconceptions if it's a remake or something that we've seen the original of we kind of hold the original near and dear to us versus okay now what is this new strange thing you're trying Mm -hmm. to do i will admit um i you were asking earlier do people want to not be surprised or something i'm like well some people probably don't uh i would think for myself that Life got really different when I got married and had kids because I didn't have time to go see movies at midnight showings and watch them multiple times before I, they even come out on video or mm. or even uh, multiple times even after I buy them. <laughs> uh, it's just I don't have time. So what am I going to spend? What am I going to roll the dice on my maybe half a dozen, if that, movies a year that I'm going to go see? I'm like, well, it better be good. (laughs) So uh, is it going to be some stupid thing that's going to ambush me with something I don't like? 
uh, or isn't it? And I'm like, well, some people would bank would rather see that. I'd rather know. <laughs> like, I, I try to think, what would my parents watch? Yeah. <laughs> Although that's totally different now. My parents basically have, they've watched more movies a year than I do. <laughs> In like, uh, ugh, my dad buys everything on DVD and then watches it at home, like on repeat. It's like... <laughs> everything he never goes well, to the theater <laughs> so he's become a child again he's regressed he's gone the full arc where you are a kid and you watch the disney movie 60 times and then you go see everything and then you have children and you have no time to watch anything to your children are up and gone so now you watch everything 60 times again this is this is like a this is a parable or something <laughs> i would think that's that's kind of the thing you bring into it is uh like for example i think one common thing you see a lot is disparity between what reviewers of movies, as in like critics think, and what general audience tends to think. Um, you see like reviews for things being completely ratioed, like a movie that critics give 90% to, the audience gives like 30%. Yeah. Or sometimes it's the opposite. Um, like the audience gave it 90% and the critics gave it like 40 or something. It's just blech uh, to them. Well, they have to watch dozens of movies in a week. Sometimes it's they get so tired of cliches that it's just off putting to the point where they just can't stand it when they see something that's cliche. Whereas someone who only watches like six movies a year, I don't care. It was at least not disappointing. <laughs> um, I don't care that it's cliche to you. I don't watch movies a dozen times a week. <laughs> so, so then, you know, people have different experiences because of that. That's um, a really good point. I hadn't really thought about reviews in that way before um you were talking us about uh people not wanting to be surprised another thing i've encountered kind of similar to that is i've talked to so many people in the last few years that you know i'm you know me i don't i don't like spoilers right like no spoilers no spoilers no spoilers i like i like the surprise of that first thing but i'll be talking to people and i'll be like well i don't want to spoil anything for you and they'll say oh i don't really care and I thought maybe at first they were just being nice or, but what I'm mm -hmm. finding is there's an entire group of people who don't care about those sorts of, sp it's not that they don't want to be surprised. They just don't need to be surprised. They, mm -hmm. to them, j enjoying the movie is, is not going to be affected on whether they know this character dies or, you know, this character turns out to have been the villain all along, and it, it doesn't affect their experience, and it, it's kind of mind-blowing to me, but I think that's another reason why maybe trailers are the way they are now, is, like you said, Nick, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of people who, that you know, I have this much time to invest in anything that's not, like, primary life function, what am I going to spend that <laughs> time on? And if it helps, you know, if, if there's, you know, three big blockbuster movies out right now and you have one night to go on that date, which one are you seeing? Then uh -huh. I, I think that's why a lot of people are like, no, I want to know more. I want to know a lot more. I want a full five minute trailer that tells me exactly what I'm getting into. I think that's also why there's so many sequels and reboots. That's why a lot of them get made is because people are like, oh, I love Ghostbusters. I'm going to go see it again. Or, I think you're <laughs> you know. completely right. It's like, why, why, take, why roll the dice on this new movie that's completely, you know, like the, I, I keep seeing trailers everywhere for that new Alita Battle Angel movie. And I hope it mm -hmm. does well because I like Robert Rodriguez. I like James Cameron. It looks interesting. But it's not, I mean, I think it's based on a comic, but it's not based on, 
you know, a, a beloved movie from the 80s or 90s. It's not based on a TV show. It's not, you know, something that people are going to be like, oh, I know Alita. So it's, it's, it has a much bigger struggle capturing an audience than, you know, the 15th Harry Potter film or the 106th Avengers film. <laughs> That's true. Although I thought that that angel thing was like an adaptation of an anime or, or a manga or something. I don't know, maybe. I, I think, yeah, I, it's, it's a manga graphic novel. I'll give it to you. <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not too picky in this show when it comes to our, uh, our, our book-related text because... <laughs> Our audience is limited enough as it is. Let's <laughs> let's not exclude them. If you say graphic novel, if you say manga, if you say anime, which is technically animated, right. we're gonna forgive. Um, the, actually, the uh, <laughs> no, we're not gonna do that. We're not a we're not a well actually podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that that will bring that will come back to full circle to the the answer I had at the beginning is I try to give movies a chance for one for two reasons one it sort of feels like the integritist thing to do i try to get my baggage out of the way so that you can give me your best shot i'm by you i mean mm-hmm. people who work in my industry i'm like okay right. i know a lot of people worked on this i know some people really wanted to make something cool somebody was probably trying all right give me, hit me with your best shot i want to see it impress me i want to see it i, I want to see something cool and I'm, i don't care who is doing it it's just got to be good on its merits that kind of thing um or at least the best as to the best i can picture and sometimes the trailers help with that as in oh this is an action movie okay i'm going in expecting action um a little bit um at least <laughs> so but the other thing is it's self-serving because i am trying to be optimistic I only get like half a dozen to a dozen of these a year. <laughs> um, why be negative about it? Why make myself miserable? <laughs> why be nitpicky? I'm going to try to let this thing, you know, be stand on its best merits because uh, I don't want to be miserable. <laughs> and so my question to you guys both then is having discussed all of these different things, if we, if you, the viewer, are aware of where there was trouble, where there was a problem with casting or distribution got in the way and changed too much. Can you then forgive the movie its faults and enjoy it more? Or does it still need to just own up and be a good movie? I think this, this podcast that we've been doing has really helped me figure that out for myself personally. Um, I think I've always kind of had the mentality of try and enjoy what works in a movie and not get too hung up on what doesn't. But I think I think doing this podcast has helped me to enjoy bad movies, if that makes any sense, because it I, I'm, I've like been training my brain now to appreciate what can be appreciated, which in some movies is not much, <laughs> <laughs> but appreciate what can be appreciated. And then, I mean, just think of the rest of it almost as an exercise in and just understanding and loving movies more. I don't know if that answers your question at all. I think I kind of lost track there for a second. No, you you, you hit uh, you hit the nail on the head. Hey, there we go. We got one. <laughs> we finally worked it in. <laughs> Hammer and nail. We're fixing movies. If I do know about that stuff, I, I will I will hear about things a lot because I tend to keep my ear to the ground with movie industry news. Um, so I'll know if, say, the director was fired or something like that mid production. 
that usually is the sign either this is going to be a, a probably a disaster or it's probably going to be some new director's breakout role or something like that. Yeah. Like uh, How to Train Your Dragon, director was fired midway through and a new director came in who did something right with it. Or you could have uh, Justice League where something happens to the director midway through, he has to leave, some other director takes over, they end up trying to fix stuff and do reshoots and they have to cover up a mustache with CGI and it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> although... Even that one, I when I'm trying to give the movie its best best merits, I'm like, I kind of enjoyed that in a way because it felt like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about the mustache specifically? Kind of the whole movie, but the mustache itself was kind of hilarious when I saw it. Like, the theater was cracking up when I saw it. <laughs> like, the cell phone footage and stuff. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> that's, ooh, that's bad. <laughs> oh, oh. This is a great time to bring up something a friend of mine taught me that I'm sure you've heard me say this before. I have a rating system for movies, and I'm sure it would work well for your podcast, too, where there's a positive direction for like movies that are just awesome, like Lord of the Rings, 10 out of 10. It's like zero to 10. That's a 10. Lord of the Rings trilogy, number one. Um, And then there's movies that, you know, go lower and lower and lower. Um, But then there's movies that are kind of they're really kind of bad, but I'm really enjoying it. Like in a train wreck sort of sense, and I'm MST3King the movie. Like I'm yep. commenting while it's going on. I think we were watching, uh, shoot, we were watching Godzilla, like Jess and I in the theater, and we were commenting like the whole time. It was hilarious. Um, we probably didn't enjoy the movie for its own merits as much as we probably should have, but I would give that one a negative uh, eight. And that's actually kind of positive because it was enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, this rating system is great. It's so clear. A negative eight is actually positive. <laughs> that's like that's like birds or something. Yeah. That's like the or the whatever that movie is. Uh, ha- Manos, <laughs> Hands of Fate or something. It's like <laughs> Troll 2 or something. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> so I, th- I think I just want to throw this out there real quick. I think we need to have another episode here this year just called Negative 10. <laughs> And we need to talk about our favorite terrible movies <laughs> and really talk about why sometimes the worst movies are sort of secretly and low-key the best movies. <laughs> and the worst ones are, of course, okay. the zeros. Okay, I'll, I'll get on that. Those are the ones you keep trying to fix, the ones that are like pretty close to zero, like it's a one. It's like, oh, that didn't even register. Mm-hmm. Like, I barely remember I watched a movie today. That's the worst. That was a complete waste of two hours. Yeah, I think we talked to <laughs> those we talked to Jess, your wife, about this, about how like those are the most offensive <laughs> movies to her are the zeros, yep. because they're the ones that like they aren't even bad enough to be mad at. They're just forgettable and uninteresting and and offensive. <laughs> and I think I agree with her on that. So, gang, I don't uh, want us to get too much further off off track. We're, we're pretty much done here. I think we've covered where the buck stops, especially in different situations. Mm -hmm. And now what I want to ask is moving forward, what's our takeaway? Because we're a podcast that likes to be positive. We're a podcast that likes to encourage growth uh, while talking about movies. And so my question is, is what's, what's the appropriate way to criticize a movie next time you see one or, or for our listeners when they're like, I didn't like this movie. What should they say? Is it just the actor sucked? Is that it? Should they think a little bit further about it? What, what do you suggest they do coming out of a movie they didn't enjoy 
that either A, may help them appreciate it more, or B, may help them zero in what didn't work and then hopefully appreciate what did work? Well, I think the very first thing and the most effective and appropriate thing that anyone can do is continue listening to Movie Fixers, the podcast. <laughs> sponsored by Audible. Or to help something. inform their decisions. <laughs> sponsored by Audible. We're not actually sponsored by Audible. But if, any, but if they want to sponsor us, that sounds great. Um, um, but in all seriousness, I know a lot of people give critics, like the broad term critics, a hard time. But... There are good critics out there, and I think finding a good critic that that you that you like what they have to say that doesn't that doesn't mean agree with, but you like what mm. they have to say is a good start because it starts to help you, I think, appreciate movies more. Absolutely, because you're you don't just come out of the theater and think that movie was good, that movie was bad, because it's it's always more complicated than that. It you know. And I think you you just start enjoying movies more when you know how to understand what all goes into them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that last bit you said is totally right. Um, the my favorite thing I got I used to I used to obsessively listen to reviewers of movies. Uh, lots of them. Spill dot com was a great hangout back when that was still running. But uh, they always say it. I'm like I was trying to say you know, what I liked about that movie. I couldn't put my finger on it, but, oh, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, you know, find someone like that who can help you make sense of what you felt if you really want to figure out what it is about a movie you wish was better or different or mm -hmm. what was so good about it. I was like, oh, I love this. It was like this thing, and it was like, it was like that, and like this. Yeah, exactly. Woo, well, yeah, that. <laughs> And it has the great side effect that if you if you if you go out of your way to learn just a little bit more about how movies are made and what goes into it, then you might find that it leads you to movies that you might not have even given a chance to before that you end up mm -hmm. loving. You know, if you find out that, you know, you know, say you're listening to this podcast right now and you don't really keep up with director names and that's not really your thing, which is fine. Um, but you find out that you really liked um, uh, what's a good uh uh, Moonrise Kingdom, or you really liked uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, but you didn't really know who Wes Anderson was, and now you've you know opened the door to all these other movies, his older catalog, and you're like, oh my god, I really like his stuff. And then from there, you find out that you know there's an actor that's in a lot, you know, Bill Murray's in a lot of his movies, and you find out that he's not just the one thing that he was in like the 80s and 90s. He's got this other catalog of work that you're suddenly mm -hmm. into, and um yeah i like that and and i think that really lets us kind of recap all of this we're we're getting critical and we're getting down in the weeds not to say that if you don't do this then you don't appreciate movies but to say hey if you do this if you take a minute and think about what what worked and what didn't and then who was responsible for that and how much responsibility they really have, then you can go out there and find more things to like. I think uh, coming from uh, working at a blockbuster video for most of my young adult life, where people would walk in and there'd be you know thousands of movies in one store and there was never anything good. And I think that's because they didn't know enough about anything to give it a shot. And if you can follow that, if you can be a little bit more critical, you actually end up 
enjoying movies more rather than disliking a lot of movies. And that's that's normally what's associated with being a critic. Oh, you must hate everything. But that's not necessarily the case. You may hate certain things. You may dislike certain things. But now you're able to really hone in on what you do like and find more of that. And I think that's a good positive message to, uh, mm-hmm. to end on on this topic here. It's okay to not like things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is okay to not like things, but I would the caveat I would like to to throw in there is but don't don't step on someone else's good time. You know, we don't all have to like the same things, but if, you know, if if a friend likes something that you don't like it, and they're open to a conversation, go for it, but don't step on their good time. I I think before we sign out, we should you want to give some recommendations, Stone? Yeah, and I'd like to give a recommendation kind of in the spirit of what we're talking about. You'd mentioned coming to light, like like getting more into the weeds of a certain director or something. One of the directors I recently discovered, and I keep trying to find more of his work, is Taika Waititi, who did Thor Ragnarok. Everybody knows that. But part of the reason I was really excited about Thor Ragnarok was a movie he did before that called The Hunt for the Wilder People. And it is just a fun romp of a movie, and I recommend it to anybody. It's a boy, he's around level 12, kind of a difficult child. He's an orphan. He gets adopted by this family out in the the bush, as they call it. And Sam Neill, right? Yeah, sorry, I'm grinning right now super hardcore because I really love this movie so much. Yeah, and it's a little serious. It's a little silly. It's Well, and the boy in it is the, the kid from Deadpool 2. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. I always forget. That's so great. Yeah. And he, so he started, uh, I first discovered him in this and I was really excited, uh, to, to watch this movie. So when Thor Ragnarok came out and then later I saw this kid was in Deadpool two, I was just even more excited and more like open to seeing those mm-hmm. films because this was just a good uh, movie. And again, I'll repeat it cause no one does this in podcasts and they should, you should always repeat your recommendation after you're done talking about it. It's the hunt for the wilder. Yeah, people. It came out in, I want to say 2016. I want to say it was good stuff. Yeah. What do you got, Matt? Um, Oh man, I don't know. I haven't been watching a lot of stuff lately cause we've been traveling a lot. I did. I'm going to, I'm going to humble brag for just a second. I did get to see an early showing of how to train your dragon three mm-hmm. last weekend and I really, really dug it. It comes out at the end of February. And I, th- I think anyone that's enjoyed the franchise so far is going to really like the this third and final installment. No spoilers, but it, it, it definitely wraps the series up in a very, I think, satisfying way. My, my only kind of gripe with the movie was I wanted a little bit more, like, punch in some of the character development. Because I feel like the first two movies really gave you those moments and i wanted a little more i think in this one but other than that i i loved it it was a fun fun movie really pretty uh they did some things in this new one that they had not done visually in the first two and it turned out really well and uh yeah so dragon three end of the month get into it great i appreciate that recommendation that i cannot (laughs) act on you yeah but you know when does this episode air (laughs) that's fair (laughs) Nick um, did you have Uh, anything in mind you'd like to recommend either within the vein of what we're talking about just something that you discovered by kind of looking a little deeper at either a creator or actor or something I'm trying to think of stuff that maybe not everyone's heard of that I'm sort of like into 
Uh, one, I have a tradition of looking at. There, there's kind of two. One is maybe niche, but uh, the other one won't be. Uh, the one that's kind of niche is I really like uh, the director, Mamoru Hosada. I know he's not that unknown. Um, if anyone actually watches, you know, anime or movies, uh, they know about Studio Ghibli, who does, like, Spirited Away and stuff. But Mamoru Hosada has done a few interesting movies, but mainly the one I keep thinking of is Summer Wars. Uh, there's a movie called Summer Wars. I always thought, this is what uh, Tron should have been. <laughs> um, I really liked it. Um, it's like social media um, plus. What was really interesting about it to me was it was this outside-looking-in idea of a culture and a person who does not have a big family uh, getting to meet someone who does have a really big family and having to spend like a weekend with them and stuff. And with this, with a big crisis going on in the background, um, it's actually really neat as a person who comes from a family that's kind of big and kind of well connected, I guess, as in we, we do like, we did have long traditions of hanging out with each other. Um, it was really neat to see that because it was sort of looking at it with new eyes. Um, the other one was, Hey, if you haven't checked out, um, the original Iron Man director, John Favreau's work before, um, outside of that, you should. Mm-hmm. Zathura, for example, is it was kind of this sort of Jumanji sequel. I forgot he did that. Um, it's actually really good. You should definitely show it to your kids. Um, it's uh, my kids really like it uh, right now. Um, it's all practi- almost like all practical effects, like lots of puppetry and stuff. It's really fun. Um, but he does a lot of great movies. Chef. Um, anytime you see him directing, I think we've talked about Chef on this show before. But Chef, I think, is just—I mean, it, it's a—it's a masterpiece. The, the, there's not a damn thing wrong with that movie. <laughs> Chef's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, John Favreau. Look up his filmography sometime. He's got some good ones. Cool. So that was Memoru Hosada, last name spelled H-O-S-O-D-A, and John Favreau. I don't have his name pulled up, but look up Iron Man, you'll find him as the right. director. And thanks for that. Those are. I'm actually going to check out uh, Hosada's stuff. I've heard of Summer Wars, and he also did The Girl Who Leapt Through Time and Wolf Children, two of which are on my Amazon watch list. I just haven't uh, pulled the trigger and started watching. Oh, nice. I added it to my watch list <laughs> as well. Well, Tone, I think that about brings us to the end of this episode. What do you think? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Nick, I want to thank you for coming on and giving us a little bit more of a professional opinion on some of this uh, discussion here. Matt and I <laughs> like to pretend we know everything, but it's not necessarily true. <laughs> I felt like I was in. I was enlightened today. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on, Nick. I learned some. I learned a thing. Well, or glad two. to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, and as always, if you guys have any uh, opinions, anything you want to add to this conversation, Matt, where can they reach us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash only on TSD. We're also online at 30something.digital. That's spelled out 30something.digital. You can also email us at contact at only on And finally, you can find us on Twitter at only on TSD. And if you like this podcast enough, right now we're just on Apple Podcasts, but if you give us a review, that helps get us seen to the rest of the world. It's it's one of those things that helps them like push it in the relevant category of your Apple Podcasts. Nick, is there anything uh, you want to let the audience know? Maybe hmm. they should check out. Uh, well, I am a freelance do? animator and illustrator for hire every now and then. Uh, I do have my own work I'm trying to push out, but that's not ready yet. But when it is ready, you'll you can find it at House Aducci. 
dot com. Educci is A D D, like the disorder. U C C I. And uh, yeah, you can check out my stuff and my wife's stuff. She's a writer. Uh, I work with her a lot. <laughs> so do we. Nick actually did the. Nick is responsible for the cover art for this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's some of my favorite. I've never wanted to cosplay myself before, but I'm I'm giving some serious thought I'm, to I'm it. I'm gonna do it. That sounds like a good Dragon Con costume this year. That or if we just do a video episode, I'm gonna have to find the vest and the uh, I gotta talk about good marketing button up on. Great. Now we gotta plan another project. <laughs> and with that, uh, just credits. I am your host again, Tony. With me as always is Matt, your co-host. Today we've had Nick Ducci, who also does our artwork. Your executive producers are Hayden Smith and Chrissy Faith, the people that keep the lights on and the reason we're able to do this. We love them very much. Normally we would have Jess Ducci on to do our recaps, but uh, this time we didn't do a movie, so we'll have to get with her next time. And I think we've got the movie picked out, Matt, right? I think so, too. Um, I don't know if I want to announce it, though. You, oh, now I'm dying think? to know. <laughs> I don't know. What? Well, then let's leave it for a surprise. We're going to try and uh, come back to you guys regularly. I know we took a bit of a time off in January and things were inconsistent, but we're going to we're gonna double down and start hitting this a lot harder. So you'll get a lot more movie fixes, a lot more movies. Uh, we'll go ahead and post on our Facebook where when the next one will come out. And until then, thank you guys. We hope you have benefited from this. I know I have. Hope you find a lot more movies in the future that you can uh, really enjoy before we go uh just a quick reminder that another tsd production is back on the air right now new episodes of jake bakes are airing online on wednesdays so be sure if you like to watch jake bake things that's your show he does all the bacon all right tone i think that's it for the week thanks for being here and nick thanks for being here and listeners thank you for listening we will see you on the next episode of movie fixers cheers bye